Welcome to the Beltway Broadcast, the premier podcast for the workplace learning and talent development professionals of the Association for Talent Development's Metro DC chapter. We've got some great resources in store for you today. Hello, fellow ATDers. I'm Stephanie Hupka, the 2023 Vice President of Membership and Outreach and a member of the Pod Squad here at the Metro DC chapter of ATD. I'm Christina Eames, Vice President of Marketing and Communications. And we also have Helena Hodges, our Vice President of Finance and Operations, as our producer. And for this episode, we are interviewing Richard Mayer. Welcome, Richard. Hello. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, we are absolutely thrilled to have a chance to spend some time learning from you today. And before we get started, I, I always love to just jump in. But before we do, we would love it if you would tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, uh, just in terms of kind of um, bio sketch kind of information, um, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm a product of public schools from kindergarten through 12th grade, Cincinnati Public Schools. I received my BA in psychology at Miami University, just up the road from Cincinnati. And then I went on to a graduate school in cognitive psychology at the University of Michigan, just a little bit up the expressway from there. Um, my interests have always been really in a very simple question, which is how can we help people learn in a way so that they can take what they've learned and apply it to new situations? So I would call that how can we teach for transfer? Um, so throughout my career as a grad student and my academic career, that's kind of been my motivating question. You think I'd have it answered by now, but <laughs> it turns out to be a, um, a challenging question. And it's taken me in a lot of interesting directions. And most recently, I've been focusing on multimedia uh, instruction as a way of helping people understand concepts. So this involves using both graphics and words to try to explain and describe materials so that people can understand it. And what's the best way to um, present both visual and verbal information. So I would say my, my basic um, research issue is applying the science of learning to education. And I, I've been involved with a lot of educational technology as a way of um, providing instruction but I'm not really focused on the technology part of it per se, I'm more on the learning part. How can you really help people learn? Does that make sense? It yeah. certainly does. And I think what you've shared has probably resonated with everyone out there. I have probably had two conversations already this month just talking about that question that you posed. How do you help people learn? How do you help people get to that point where they can apply what they've learned? I think this is the one question that really... I don't know if it plagues our industry or inspires it, depending on the day, but that seems to be where people are really curious. So we're going to talk today about multimedia learning. And I think you've already started to give us a little bit of a definition because that is a pretty big topic. And for some people, they're probably wondering what really goes into that. I'm curious if you could expand a little bit on what that means. What are some of the components? Is it typically just graphics? Does it include things like video? I'd love to know how you've been defining that. Sure. Um, I have a very simple definition of maybe it's my, uh, my Midwest upbringing. Very simple um, definition. I think multimedia learning involves learning with 
words and graphics. And by words, I mean either spoken or printed words. And by graphics, I mean any kind of visual representation. So it could be a static diagram or illustration. It could be video. It could be an animation. It could even be learning in virtual reality. So information comes in through our eyes and through our ears. How do we, how can we arrange things so that it will maximize learning? It's kind of what I'm focused on. Nice. Well, and you've developed a theory, right? The, um, was it cognitive theory of multimedia learning? Can you share right. a little bit about that? I've, I've been so curious. Sure, sure. So what I've done is kind of just the um, main idea in um, the cognitive theory of multimedia learning is that we're borrowing ideas from cognitive science. And the three main ideas are um, what I would call dual channels, limited capacity, and active processing. So let me just briefly explain each of this. Sure. So by dual channels, I mean that humans have separate information processing channels for verbal and visual information. We, we process words and images in different parts of our brain. They're obviously connected, but they're separate channels. So we have to, we have to keep that in, in mind. Um, second is limited capacity, which is probably the number one discovery from psychology, I would say, or, cogn or uh, cognitive science. And that is that we can only process a very limited amount of information at any one time. So we can fill the screen with great stuff, but people can only really attend to a very small part of it. So we have to keep that in mind that humans have a very limited processing capacity. Um, and third, active processing, which is kind of the challenge here, uh, is the idea that um, in order to really meaningfully learn material, we have to engage in appropriate processing during learning. And that involves paying attention to the relevant information, which I call selecting, uh, mentally organizing that into a coherent representation in your mind, uh, which I call organizing. And then integrating that with relevant prior knowledge. So I call that integrating. So when we learn, we're selecting, organizing, and integrating, but we're using a system that has very limited capacity in, in the visual and verbal channel. So we have to figure out how can we present information in a way that's going to prime people's processing and allow them to complete their processing. Does that make sense? Totally. It it definitely does. And I mean, it makes sense to the point that I'm thinking a lot of practitioners out there are probably pretty excited about that and also probably wondering, how do you start to wrap your arms around that? Because at face level, I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot about that that makes sense. How do people typically do this in the day to day? I'm thinking instructional designers, people who are kind of working on building some of these training or, or learning opportunities. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I've been spending the last 30 years trying to figure out. So, I, you know, when you're an academic, you have the luxury of kind of trying to test these things out. So my colleagues and I over the last 30 years really have conducted probably at least 200 experiments where that are pretty straight up comparing one way of presenting information versus the exact same thing, but with just one feature change. So we can kind of see how does changing that feature affect learning outcomes? Because I'm, I'm all into learning outcomes and in particularly transfer, being able to uh, answer questions that kind of go beyond what was presented. Um, 
So I, what we have found is that there are kind of three classes of instructional design techniques that make sense. One is aimed at what I would call reducing extraneous processing. So extraneous processing is cognitive processing that's just really wasting your resources. So when you have to scan all over the screen because you can't figure out what you should be looking at, that's extraneous processing. Or if there's just a lot of extra material on the screen that looks pretty, but really is not relevant, that creates extraneous processing. So some techniques for reducing extraneous processing that we've have pretty good evidence for are what I would call the coherence principle, which is really not original. I mean, this is in most instructional design um, uh, books, which is basically to eliminate extraneous material. So don't don't put anything in the lesson that isn't really supporting your instructional goal. So it's nice to have all kinds of cool graphic techniques, but if they're not really supporting the instructional goal, they're wasting people's cognitive resources. People are spending work using their working memory on that instead of the content. So basically you want to weed out words that aren't needed, images that aren't needed extra material that's not needed. So that's the coherence principle. A related principle is what I call the signaling principle, which is, you know, put cues in that direct people's attention to what they should be looking at on, on the screen, because sometimes there's a lot on there and you just want to kind of guide people where they should look. So we can use things like arrows or different coloring or flashing or spotlighting. There's all different ways to do visual signaling. And there's also ways to perform verbal signaling, like stressing certain words with your voice, or um, if it's printed on the screen, put it in a different color, things like that. So that's signaling. One other example of a technique for reducing extraneous processing is what I call spatial contiguity. And with that technique, the idea is, <coughs> excuse me, we want to have printed words placed next to the part of the graphic that they're referring to. So instead of having a legend at the bottom or on the side or having a caption at the bottom, that creates split attention where people have to look back and forth between the image and the words and they can get lost. So we want to put the words next to the part of the image they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So if we have like a diagram of the human digestive system, Instead of having a legend, we want to put the actual names next to the parts of the system. That minimizes extraneous processing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So those are those are techniques for reducing extraneous processing. Then the next kind of class of techniques is what I call te techniques for managing essential processing. Sometimes, you know, the material is complex and we... Um, so we we can't like eliminate parts of it, but it's still going to overload people's working memory because it's so complicated for them, especially for beginners. So we want to eliminate. Uh, so we want to manage essential processing by um, uh, dealing with the complexity of material. Like I said, sometimes material is um, complex and we can't really eliminate parts of it that are essential. So. Well, one technique for dealing with a, with complex material is what I call the segmenting principle, which is to break it into parts and to present the parts in a way that they build on each other. Mm. A lot of times I think 
instructional designers are told to present the whole system first and then talk about each part. But that is overloading mm-hmm. when you present the whole thing first. It, it's it's really demotivating because it's just too much to look at. So the segmenting principle says just start with the very first part, make sure people understand that, then add the next part, then add the next part. So we're kind of building up to the to the whole big picture. Um, that that's a way of never overloading working memory. Um, another way of handling this is what I call the pre-training principle, which is to give people training in the key terms. So they understand what the key terms are, you know, how they work, because there's often a lot of technical jargon. And when you're trying to explain things and you use words that people aren't familiar with, that can kind of throw them off. So if they know what those words mean before you start, then your explanation isn't as overloading. Hmm. So those are two, two techniques, segmenting and pre-training. Those are two examples of ways to um, what I call manage essential processing. Does this make sense? Absolutely. Okay. And then the, the third kind of class of techniques is what I call techniques for fostering generative processing. So generative processing is kind of the deep processing where you're trying to make sense of what you're learning, trying to understand it, trying to relate it to your prior knowledge. And the, the issue here has to do with motivating learners to want to do that, to actually exert effort, to want to make sense out of things because kind of the default strategy for some learners is to just listen and watch and not think too much about it. So to get them more involved or, you know, engage in active learning when we're dealing with, you know, a situation like maybe online learning, it, it, it's hard to get people physically engaged, but really important thing is to get them cognitively engaged. So how do you do that? Some of the techniques that we've used um, are things like, we have the personalization principle, which at first I thought was was impossible, but a student of mine came up with this. And it's the idea that um, we should use conversational language instead of formal language, use uh, first and second person mm-hmm. like you and I and we um, kind of talk to people in a conversational way rather than the typical academic formal way um, that builds um, rapport between the learner and the student, and even though it might be an online situation, and you know that person, that's you know it, it maybe is not <laughs> is not really interacting with you, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> um, you still can feel a social connection. So personalization, we have found, is is very effective in boosting transfer performance. Another kind of similar technique um, um, involves gestures. So using positive outward gestures. Um, and positive voice um, helps learning. And I think it's for the same kind of reason. It builds social rapport. It makes you feel the instructor cares about you, and therefore you try harder. Um, So both gesture and voice seem to be important, which are things I never thought about as a cognitive psychologist. (laughs) Those seem more like social Mm -hmm. issues. And then, um, well, there are lots of things, but I'll just pick a few. Like one other one, because I don't want to overload your working memory. <laughs> hey, this is, is a um, gold mine. I love this. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, is uh, generative learning activities. So these are prompts to ask the learner to engage in certain activities like, okay, after each little section of the lesson, please you know, type in a one-sentence summary 
of what you just learned. Hmm. So like if you have a lesson on, we have a lesson on, uh, uh, cognitive behavior. (laughs) Okay, sure. And after each little section, um, we just ask you type in a one sentence explanation that, that greatly improves people's performance, even though we don't give them feedback on whether even their explanations, right. Just the act of having to do, to engage in a generative learning activity like that is helpful. And, and other activities are things like self-testing, trying to explain, trying to teach somebody else, all kinds of, all kinds of um, generative activities like that, trying to draw a picture that corresponds to the text you just learned. Those are all techniques to just try to get students more engaged or learners more engaged. Wow. Um, this is a gold mine. So that gives you kind of a sampling of some yes. of the techniques that we've come up with. I mean, our, our, our readers slash learners slash listeners slash watchers are definitely going to want to go deeper into this. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah. So you have a book on this, right? Well, that, you want to share uh, yeah, a little a bit about <laughs> a few your latest one? Sure. Um, the the one that I think might be most relevant to your listeners um, um, was written by Ruth Clark and I. It's called E-Learning and the Science of Instruction. Mm-hmm. And what we tried to do is take these evidence-based principles. I mean, we're all proud of ourselves that we did all these research studies, and we'd love to tell you all the details of them. But what we tried to do is take that research and and put it in a form that's probably more practical for people who actually want to use it. So um, I just happen to have it here. There we go. Hey, <laughs> um, <laughs> e-learning I'm familiar with that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's the fourth edition. And um, Ruth and I are now working on the fifth edition. Um, I think that's a good start. If you want to you know, torture yourself and go a little deeper, <laughs> I would, I would recommend this one, just multimedia learning. This is in its third edition. So that's more um, goes to some of the deta- actual details of the research studies. Nice. I've got to tell you, I'm really excited to read and even reread some of what you've shared because I have been a learner taking e-learning courses before where I've actually found myself lost mm-hmm. on a page. And, you know, through what you've been describing, there are a lot of techniques out there that can prevent that from happening. And a lot of times I think the designer, you know, the, the person out there actually authoring, they don't necessarily think about it from the learner perspective because they know what they're trying to do and they know how much they're trying to do. And if it makes sense to them, it should make sense to the learner, except for every once in a while you click on an icon and then you can't remember which one you clicked on. And there are 14 (laughs) on the screen and you think, well, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) So I am really excited that you're sharing some of these tips because I think they're practical and I think that they really help people with that application part of it. I mean, just the real essentials for it. You know, that, that's good to hear. I mean, that's what I love about this kind of research because it has both a, a theoretical side. I mean, we're trying to understand yeah. how people learn and how to help people learn. But that also has a lot of really, I think, useful practical implications for just it's really comes down to communication. How, how do you communicate with somebody else given, you know, the limitations on our cognitive architecture? Mm-hmm. I think. A lot of times we think our job is to present information and the learner's job is to absorb that information. But if we present it in an inefficient way, they're, they're not, they're not going to learn it in a way that's productive. They might memorize little parts of it, but we want them to be able to use it and understand it. So we have to kind of 
not overload their working memory as we're presenting it. Absolutely. I think it's a very important point. And I'm also point. guessing there's a lot of instructional designers out there that are now saying, I'm going to show this podcast to some of my SMEs because they keep trying to mm-hmm. put 40 hours of <laughs> information in a one hour course. <laughs> I think, you know, that's such a typical um, goal that we all have as instructors. Yeah. We want to like, Tell our, tell our learners everything, everything. <laughs> they, they need to know, but it's a lot, I think it's a lot better to choose the, a few core concepts you want to get across that are, will just be anchors yeah. that people can really understand fully and clearly. And, and they can build on that later. Yes. Um, I think, you know, educators have criticized you know, just K-12 curriculum saying it's, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's what we don't want. We want, we want to have a few topics that we can go into some depth in to, we can't, you can't cover, you can't cover everything. Exactly. No. <laughs> Not without that overwhelm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I can't believe how fast our time has gone by. Can you believe it's already been 20 minutes? We are already... <laughs> this has flown I by. know, it has, right? So we are already at that point in the episode where we go over rapid fire. Of course, folks are going to want to... We'll have um, Richard's information in the episode description so you can learn more. You've got the books. But we're going to get just a little bit more information from Richard, non-multimedia um, information. But we won't overload you, I swear. No. Sorry, bad joke, bad joke. <laughs> it's easily done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, at the end of every episode, we do some rapid fire questions, as our listeners well know. Um, 60 seconds to respond to each one. Are you ready? Okay. Give us one book that everyone must read and why. With all modesty, I'd have to say e learning and the science <laughs> of instruction. <laughs> Me too. Because <laughs> this is a book that, um, we try to take a theory-based approach and an evidence-based approach, but gear it, you know, to a practical audience. So you can kind of see, it's not just do this, do this, do this. It's kind of trying to explain why you should do these things, how it relates to help people process information. Because if you have a, you know, a conception of, you know, what's going on in people's um, cognitive architecture, that really helps guide, guide you. Because there really aren't, the kind of principles are not written in stone. They, you have to adjust them based on different conditions. So they apply mostly to beginners. They might not apply as well to more experienced learners. So you have to kind of keep that in mind. And um, sometimes they depend on uh, other characteristics of the situation. So I try and we try in that book to give you a, a really good foundation for instructional design principles that are based on the science of learning. Excellent. Well, I I will definitely get it as well. And as well as the multimedia one too. Okay. So what is one tool and you can identify tool and however you want that you cannot live without? Okay. I've really thought about this one and I I don't, I'm not facetious, but I think it's my brain. (laughs) Hey, Um, that's a great one. Great answer. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's the tool I can't live without because that's where my curiosity comes from. That's where my ideas come from. Um, there are a lot of like technical tools. They kind of come and go, but I think they're there to support human cognition 
So I, I don't rely a lot on specific technical tools. I see them as aids to human cognition. Yeah. You know, when people make this distinction between a learner-centered approach and a technology-centered approach, I like to take a learn. I mean, a, a lot of it's very tempting in the field of educational technology to take a technology centered approach. Think about what's the most, the cutting edge technology. How can we apply that? But that has a very bad history. It usually doesn't work because you have to think about how people are going to use it, uh, how humans actually process information. So I think you want to take a learner centered approach and ask, how can we use technology to support human cognition. Absolutely. So that's why I think, yeah, my brain's the most important tool. It is. Tool. <laughs> and we are glad you're using that as your most important tool because it's helping all of us out. <laughs> so what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? <laughs> that's also funny. I, I talked this over with my wife. This is, um, well, just on the personal level, uh, my dad once said something I didn't really understand at the time, which was, Never read your own press releases, um, which kind of means, you know, don't keep thinking about how great you are, <laughs> <laughs> which is hard for academics because, yeah, it just comes with the territory to have a large ego. So I've tried to keep that in mind. Um, I think we have to be humble. And I think our work is kind of building on what other people have yes. done. And um, and it also involves a huge collaboration with other other people. Um, so, uh, so that's, that's probably the one piece of advice. I also, when I was thinking about it would say advice that I would probably give myself is to try to stay mm -hmm. curious about things. Um, because I think your curiosity is kind of what drives kind of what drives to our research. Yeah. So as long as you're curious about how people, in my case, how people learn and how you can help them learn better, that kind of just motivates you to want to keep keep yeah. trying. Oh, I think it's a reason a lot of us wake up every morning and get excited about what the day will bring. It's trying yeah. to to solve that that problem, answer that question. And Richard, we are so happy that you took some time to join us today. I do not mean to feed your ego any further, but yours was one of the first books that I read when I was first getting into the industry and was really instrumental in helping me to you know, kind of decide if this is going to be right for me. So I'm really grateful I had a chance to get a chance, well, get a chance to talk with you. And I'm sure everyone who's had a chance to listen today feels the same way. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for those kind words. You made my day. Oh, very happy to do that. And of course, many thanks to all of you in our community for listening. And before you go, we have a message from our producer, Helena Hodges. Are you a member of the Metro DC chapter of ATD? We have resources just for you. Go to dcatd.org and select the Members Only section of resources to access our digital library, member directory, and chapter documents. Love this episode? Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and provide a review.